This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've been podcasting now for about three years trying to reach people who are interested in psychological issues for sure, but to those of you who may just have been initially diagnosed with depression or anxiety, an eating disorder, or you're having relationship problems. And then there's always that third group, people who might never really darken the door of a therapist, but are interested in trying to seek answers and would listen to a podcast like Self Work. I'm glad any and all of you are here. Many of you have contacted me to tell me this week that you heard the interview I did with Lewis Howes on his podcast, The School of Greatness. If any of the rest of you want to check it out, it's episode 895. He and his team try to bring what they consider great ideas and ways of being to his listeners, and I was very honored to be there. I imagine his producer was the one who mentioned my new book called Perfectly Hidden Depression, if you're new to the podcast, but everyone was incredibly welcoming. He was in LA, and we had made a special trip to go, and I spent most of the interview feeling very centered, really, reminding myself of something that I advised someone a long time ago. They want you here not because of what you're going to say, but what you've already said, so just be you. When I stopped and thought about some of the questions that Lewis had for me, which were actually very good, I was intrigued. You know, I forget that there are so many people who don't have a concept of what therapy is like or what its purpose is. His questions grounded me in a reality that most people have, that they've never tried therapy and don't quite understand it. His questions dealt with shame, common reasons for seeking therapy, how I might define mental illness and are we all mentally ill? How do we recognize depression, especially if you're a perfectionist or have trouble with denial or self-acceptance? So I'm going to use some of his questions as the backdrop of the podcast today on self-work. We're going to be talking about therapy. And our listener email today is from a therapist, actually, who listened to that very interview and had a question about pseudoseizures, which is actually a disorder I did my dissertation on years ago. It's a fascinating topic. We'll touch briefly on it, but mostly on her question about how to help her patient. By the way, I'll have the link to the Lewis Howes podcast in the show notes. So take a minute to relax, and let's talk about therapy and why people even seek therapy. As I mentioned in the intro, I was very honored to be a guest on Lewis Howe's The School of Greatness. The podcast was actually published on December the 30th, although I'd gone to L.A. to record the interview in mid-December. Lewis is a former pro football player who's also had a New York Times bestseller, in fact, I think a couple of them, and he's a very influential podcaster. He's also come forward to reveal his own sexual abuse as a child. His producer had seen the book that I'd sent out through my own publicist, and it piqued her interest. So there I was, sitting in Lewis's breakfast room, California sunshine pouring in from every nook and cranny and a view of the mountains in the back, and talking about mental illness, therapy, and perfectly hidden depression. I'd actually prepared on the plane. I'd read his entire book, The Masks of Masculinity, which was very interesting, as I'd made the assumption that that's why he wanted to talk with me. 
since Perfectly Hidden Depression also talks about masks. So I read the book from cover to cover on the plane ride there. But I should never make assumptions because I was wrong. He didn't mention his own book at all, but wanted to know more about my own journey as a therapist, what I'd learned. It was a very challenging interview because it was so off the cuff and certainly not scripted in any way. But it made me think I sometimes don't stop to realize that although I live almost every day in the world of therapy and doing therapy, helping people strive for change and supporting vulnerability, that's not a world others live in. His questions seemed to want to get at what was underneath the whole idea of therapy. And I figured if he wanted to know, you'd want to know. Some of you have heard me say, I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. It did help me through some pretty rough years in my life. And I wanted to do that for others. Pass that gift on, so to speak. Now, I don't have an hour more to answer these in depth as I did in the interview. Nor actually will my answers be the same because I can't quite remember. So again... As I said in the intro, there'll be a link if you're interested. So here are five of his questions. Again, I thought you'd want to know the answers. I talk a lot about shame and perfectly hidden depression. So his question was, what happens if we hold on to shame? Shame is different from guilt. When you feel guilty, it's for a specific behavior or choice. Maybe you chose to yell at your kid this morning and you feel guilty about it, realizing that it wasn't necessary given the situation. But when you feel shame, you make those things you feel guilty about as defining your own value. It's different from feeling remorse about the behavior or action. You're telling yourself, in fact, pummeling yourself with the belief that you have little to no value. You should be ashamed of yourself. And you carry that around. You make that remorseful action about your own character. And just think about it. If you walk around for years absorbing this regret as if it means you are less than, then it certainly can lead to depression. But it also can, somewhat contradictorily, make you continue to do the things that you feel remorseful for. Now, this might seem kind of nuts, but why? Because you don't value yourself enough anymore to believe that you're worth thinking about or believing in, your shame actually will convince you that you're not worth trying to change. So you might go on and continue the behavior that you feel remorse for. Think about addictions. People hate the fact that they're alcoholics, or they're shopaholics, or they're gamblers. But they carry around that shame, and it actually gives them permission to continue in a really odd way. Because you believe that you're defined by your mistakes. And you can easily fall into a rut of shame. The answer of this is to, of course, begin to let go of that. And that's what we do a lot in therapy. You start questioning, well, why do you need to hang on to this? What function is that shame serving for you? And as you begin to figure that out, you can let it go piece by piece and realize that your vulnerabilities don't define you any more than your competencies do. You're just all the same person. Then you can find a peace and you can be able to live in the present. A lot of therapy is about that. Now, of course, there are people who don't shame themselves at all. And we're talking about a whole different problem there. So here's another question that Lewis had. What would you say are the common things or the common theme that you see as challenges that people who seek therapy have? 
my sense is, and I know this was true for me, that therapy offered me a safe, supportive environment in which to search. People come to therapy to find answers that they're struggling to find alone. They know something isn't right. They may be trying to manage actual mental illness. Maybe they've just been diagnosed or they've had the diagnosis for a long time, but they're struggling to really manage the illness. Others believe that mental illness means that they've failed in some way. Or, of course, it could be evident in their relationships. The problems are emerging there. They get hurt all the time, or they hurt others all the time, and they feel lost. I certainly did and still do at times. And what therapy offers is someone who's been trained to listen objectively You know, I don't do therapy with my friends because I have an agenda with them. Good therapists try not to have an agenda of any kind. They're simply listening to give you feedback. I learned in graduate school, this is what we were taught, that therapists are agents of change. So when I'm listening, I'm listening not only for what people are saying, but what they're not saying, what they're doing and what they're not doing. It's almost like my clients are drawing me a map of their lives. And when we look together at that map and see that there's been a history of anxiety or depression in their lives, that they've had trauma that they've never recognized as such, when you begin to make those connections, when you're both looking at the map, you're far more able to see what needs to be changed. And talking it out, seeing how your own thinking or emotions are involved in helping to create what's going wrong can lead to the search being over. But you still need to find the courage to risk and change. I hope that makes sense to you. I actually had never even had that particular thought or metaphor in my head that it was like drawing me a map. Or actually, more importantly, they're drawing a map for themselves. Here's another question. What is mental illness and do we all have some type of it? (laughs) I kind of gulped when he asked this question because, wow, that's a very full topic, right? But as I sat and thought for a second, I thought, you know, mental issues are on a spectrum, just like medical problems are. I can be anxious, but it doesn't override what I do. Believe me, when I first started podcasting, I was extremely anxious, and now I just kind of sit down and do it. Now, in order to be diagnosed with mental illness, you have to fit certain diagnostic criteria that can be found in a book called the DSM-5. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, basically for psychiatry, but also obviously for psychology. And it's a big, thick book. There are all kinds of mental illness diagnoses, everything from cognitive issues that are medical cognitive issues that are not medical or we don't know their medical base as of yet, like schizophrenia. There's depression, anxiety, eating disorders, trauma disorders, dissociative disorders, conversion disorders, all kinds of disorders. And then there are, of course, personality disorders, which we've talked about. But for it to be mental illness, it has to sabotage the fulfillment and happiness for your life. There has to be dysfunction That is noticeable, both certainly to other people and often to the person themselves. We can all be a little neurotic. I'm scared of heights for some unknown reason, but I can still get on an airplane. If I struggle to do that, it could be labeled more of a mental illness, such as a panic disorder or even a phobia. So it's either the intensity or the dysfunctionality of what's happening that causes it to be a mental problem versus a mental illness. And then, of course, if it reaches diagnostic criteria. 
He did ask me a question about perfectly hidden depression. Perfectly hidden depression is a term made up by me to talk about, I believe, an overlooked presentation of depression that actually presents as a very perfect-looking life. And a lot of therapists will diagnose it as anxiety, if they even go to therapy, which is rare, rather than an underlying depression because the person has so rigidly compartmentalized their emotions, meaning they push them away so far from their consciousness that they're not even aware of how sad they can be. They don't really know how to feel sadness. So his question was, how do you recognize if you have depression if you're a perfectionist? I've heard this question a lot in the last five years as I've been writing the book. Many of us can have distinct troubles with denial. We don't want to believe that something is wrong with us. And certainly perfectionists don't. And they have a very rigid method of pushing away what has been painful or traumatic. They may not see at all what kind of impact that event had or that experience had. So what I decided to do to answer this question was to quote a couple of emails that I've gotten that might help you see what happens when someone tries to sometimes confront their own depression. Here's the first. I just found your podcast and feel so relieved others feel like me. I was diagnosed with depression after years of medication and therapists diagnosing me with general anxiety disorder. I never thought I was depressed, but it started to make sense. When I heard about perfectly hidden depression, I knew right away, that's me. I'm not sure I can get through this on my own. I've never told anyone how I truly feel in my dark thoughts. But I tried to reach out to my husband and recently opened up to him. He laughed and had a, you're being dramatic and crazy attitude. So I shut down. But as I read about perfectly hidden depression, I've never felt more heard or understood. So you can see that this woman tried very hard to find out what was wrong. She knew something was wrong. But no one could see her depression, and even her husband is in denial about it and thinks she's being, quote-unquote, dramatic. Unfortunately, this is a common response to someone trying to talk about uh, any kind of mental illness. Maybe it's due to stigma. Maybe it's due to the fact that they're in denial themselves about problems they have. But it makes the whole topic much more difficult. But here's a second email to me with a far different response. She says, I'd never considered that I was depressed, would never have articulated this to my doctor, as I would have thought myself a fraud. I've considered counseling, but couldn't phrase why I needed help. I have intense feelings of emptiness and loneliness, which upon further research this weekend, I believe to be linked to my childhood. I've often felt the luckiest person, as all of my personal dramas, divorce and loss, have not been as deep and damaging as other people's, or so I thought but realize now that this was because it kept it all going for my children and my parents. I have people who love me and have achieved both academically and professionally, but when I turn the lens on these situations in light of perfectly hidden depression, I see exactly where my issues lie. I spoke to my husband on Saturday morning for the very first time, and I love this response. He said that he'd always found it difficult to know what I was thinking or feeling, as I always push things inside. However, he said that he would describe me as being depressed, which surprised me. And then, my teenage son described to me how my laughter does not reach my eyes. I think the simple relief of being able to name what I am feeling, describe the complexity of my emotions and actions, is groundbreaking for me. I get chills when I read emails like this, because 
depression can hide underneath perfectionism. And I wrote this book to give people that were hiding the map that I was talking about before to be able to see what was in their lives that was leading them to so strongly believe that they had no right to feel pain or express pain or loss or loneliness. I remain passionate about this message. And you know what? With your help, we're getting it out there. Here's one more more general question, not about perfectly hidden depression. How do we accept something about our past that we are not proud of? If anything makes sense to you from this podcast, I hope it's my perspective on this. And if you agree or disagree, I'd actually love to hear from you. Email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. Here's my answer. It's shame that tells you that your vulnerabilities, your mistakes, the things that you're not proud of, define you. And you believe they define you more than your strengths. Now, it's an obvious problem if you don't learn from them or justify them or ignore them or deny them. That makes things more complicated because you don't seem to have remorse. But many of us feel that our mistakes far outweigh what we can claim as our strengths. And some people struggle to even identify what their strengths are. It's amazing to me that if I hand somebody a piece of paper who's sitting in front of me and say, write down your three strongest attributes, and they just stare at me blankly. I don't know what they are. In my Facebook closed group, for example, I have three questions that I ask for people to answer. The last one is, what do you hope to give to this group? You'd be amazed how many people answer that question with, I don't know if I have anything to give. It's so important to be able to know what your strengths are because they balance out your vulnerabilities. You and I are human, and to learn, you have to make mistakes. You don't solve the problem the first time. You don't hit the home run or cook the perfect meal or get the promotion or figure out that very best thing to say to your child. Self-acceptance is vital to healthy well-being. And self-acceptance isn't a lack of humility. It's far from that. It's recognizing faults, weaknesses, struggles, trying to learn what needs to be learned, but allowing those to be balanced out by your strengths and your competencies and your successes and recognizing those as well. Try this exercise. List what you believe your strengths are. Then list your vulnerabilities and just Sit with that and see what you feel. I can be patient might be a strength. I tend to procrastinate is a vulnerability. I can be loving a strength. I can also be jealous a vulnerability. Then think about your best friend and list their strengths and vulnerabilities. It's interesting to me when we do that, we think, sure, I know that she tells little white lies sometimes, or she's always late, or she always forgets my birthday, but I still love her. So we can know someone's vulnerabilities because we understand where they come from, and we can give them support. So why would your feeling about yourself be any different? That's a strong message from therapists as well. Self-acceptance and not letting your mistakes define you. Our listener email is from someone who used the speak pipe question, and it was sparked by this same interview. Hi there, Dr. Margaret. I've just seen you. I'm speaking very quickly. I've got 90 seconds. I've just seen your podcast with Liz House, which is awesome. 
I'm a therapist. I work very much in the same way as you. I use a lot of my own experience. I have a client who has been having seizures. She has got a lot of unresolved grief. Her father died. She's very close to. She's only young. Uh, five years ago, a lot of other stuff's happened. She's held it all in by being strong, inverted commas. We've now got to a brilliant place where she is looking forward to going to the grieving process and is actually feeling you know, really safe about it. She's had all these neurological tests, nothing's coming up. I saw your thing about pseudo seizures, which is what I thought she was having, although I didn't know there was an actual name for it. I just kind of thought, well, your body is just screaming at you, please deal with this. So I'm interested to hear anything more about that area of your work. And I send you my email address. But yeah, awesome awesome it's funny when things just turn up isn't it just when you need them so thanks again for your podcast it's amazing i'm going to send off your book have a great new year first of all i'm always delighted that therapists are listening to this podcast it's kind of like taking a supervisory role with therapists that are trying to learn from other mental health professionals so thank you for that the case she talks about involves a woman who's had loss, the death of her father, but doesn't seem to know how to grieve or allow herself to feel painful emotion and needs to learn how to do that. She's also revealing sexual abuse in her history. So the theory is that the mind and the body will unconsciously act out the emotional and psychic disturbance that is causing. I'll give you an example from my own life. My husband and I were trying to get pregnant and we're in the midst of infertility treatment. I wasn't allowing myself to feel too much about it. I was actually in grad school, and it was taking everything I had to keep afloat. But then a strange thing happened. I developed spasms in my back that made the act of intercourse very painful. Now, there could have been a medical reason for this. It lasted for several months, but was also strange is that as soon as I began talking about my anger, about the infertility openly in therapy, the spasms disappeared. I know that it was allowing myself to feel that caused the spasms to not be necessary, unconsciously. Let me give a simple explanation of what pseudo-seizures are. They are seizure-looking activity that someone goes through. You really think they're having a seizure, and so do they, and so do the doctors. So all around them believe they're having a medical seizure. But when hooked up to an EEG, there's no abnormal brain activity that's similar in pattern to what happens normally with seizures. They seem to be psychologically induced, not medically. Now, it can be very hard for someone to accept this. And in fact, some never do. And interestingly, you can have both pseudo-seizures and real seizures. But I've worked with a few patients who've made great strides in connecting with their emotions, and their seizure-like activity is reduced or stopped. It's hard work, and not everyone's willing to do it, because it's hard to accept that you're not medically sick. You don't want to have epilepsy, for sure, and there are a lot of consequences to that. But it's just hard to think that something that seems so medical could be actually emotionally based. I did my dissertation on this and found that a history of sexual abuse was statistically significant for those with pseudoseizures. So there is an interesting correlation. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> but this therapist was very tuned in to her client's lack of grieving, probably about a lot of things in her life. And her therapist sensed that something was being unconsciously acted out. That means that the patient didn't know she was doing it. 
But won't it be interesting to see as her work continues what she begins to figure out, what map she and her therapist begin to draw? It certainly sounds to me as if this therapist is very tuned in, and it's likely that their work together will be very helpful. And as far as the kind of synergy that this therapist mentions in her voicemail, I think that comes together a lot. Sometimes things happen right when you need them. So I hope that this has been a helpful conversation for you about some of the topics that are brought up in therapy. People are searching, and when you're searching, sometimes it's good to ask for help, to look at that map with someone else's eyes on it, because they may see things because of their training, because of their perspective, because of their objectivity, that you simply cannot see. I know that was done for me, certainly, many times. I want to thank all of you for being here at Self Work. So many of you have joined recently, and I'm delighted to have you on board. Please feel free to email me with questions or comments at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can also go to my website where I've been blogging weekly for many years. That's DrMargaretRutherford.com. And if you subscribe there, you will get a weekly newsletter. That's it, I promise, with my blog post and podcast for the week. It's just a really easy way of keeping up with me. Of course, my new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, is on sale, and actually the price has been lowered significantly on Amazon, but you also might want to support your local bookstore or Barnes & Noble and buy there. I'm getting more and more emails, and in fact, for the very first time, I was so honored yesterday, a new patient walked in, and he had a copy of the book in his hand. He said, this is me, and I need help. I cannot tell you what kind of feeling that was. Really incredible, and I'm so looking forward to doing just that, to try to help. What keeps all this going is reviews that you leave for me here about the podcast, on iTunes, or wherever you listen. But also, if you're reading the book, please don't feel like you have to be a professional reviewer. Really, the books that do very well are books that have lots of reviews. And so I am asking that you leave a review doesn't have to be anything like from the New York Times or you don't have to sound anyway. Just write what's in your heart about what you've read and what it means to you. Some of you have even contacted me and thanked me for these podcasts and said, what can we do? Well, that's what you can do. So it helps me spread the word. Unfortunately, I hate to focus on rankings, but they're important. So it helps with the rankings. (laughs) I do have a Facebook closed group. But you can join at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work, facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'd love to have you there. We're right about 1,600 folks right now from all over the world. And it's a really very active and vibrant group. So thank you for being here today. I'm Dr. Margaret. Take very good care. This has been Self-Work.